I wanted to start out by drawing your attention to something that I find a little bit peculiar. This one little word that we often use in our communication, especially in email. And I want to reflect on how it might be limiting us in some way. That word is just. So you think about a situation where you're waiting for a response, you're waiting for particular outcome and you want to communicate that to somebody through a message and we throw in this word just to sort of calm their fears I guess when they see it just wanted to check in on the application so to me it's sort of like saying look I know this is going to bother you but this is the only thing I'm going to ask of you just going to check in And I heard a psychologist or a business person, I think, might have been talking about why we use that and how we don't need it. I started getting rid of that in my communications when I'm following up. It's like, I have a right to ask how things are going. And I'd say, I wanted to check in with you. I hope you're doing well. And I've noticed that I've gotten better communication since I've gotten rid of the word just. But the reason why I thought of that is because what it often leads to when you use just in response from people and the other person says something like thanks for your patience or thanks for being patient and sometimes I get a little triggered by that because I'm thinking I haven't been patient yet so how grateful can you actually be now I'm okay with people saying thanks for your patience afterwards after it's all resolved it's like thanks for being understanding and patient this took and we know this took a while I just think it's funny. Lots of us do that. But I kind of wish, I guess, that people would say, we got delayed or acknowledge that they're doing something to hold this thing up. If it requires patience on my end, then maybe something is beyond the normal pattern. So anyways, we use the word patience in a lot of different ways. I like to define it as waiting without keeping time learning the art of waiting for your outcome but managing your tension previously i thought like this is a pretty passive thing i didn't really know if i was patient or impatient in general but then i read the book siddhartha by herman hesse when i was a young man And that's when suddenly patience became this dynamic force because the main character, and I've mentioned this before in other talks, but the main character continues to acknowledge that he has three main skills and they don't really seem like skills until you go along his adventure. But the three skills are, I can think, I can fast, and I can wait. He was trained as a monk But this third one really kind of captured my imagination. I can wait. And you see throughout the book how that actually becomes something very powerful in his transformation, that he can wait for outcomes. And he can wait with the right attitude. So that's when I started to realize that patience, while it actually is somewhat passive, or inactive, there's something that leads 
to dynamicism in life. However, psychologists give a little bit more detail with what patience is. There is a website, I think it's called Greater Good, and it organizes a lot of the positive psychology movement and the work of psychologists like Dr. Robert Ammons, who studies gratitude and other virtues, along with another researcher, Schnitger, they started studying patients too. So this is relatively new in the field of psychology and, and also in neuroscience. Schnitger came up with three kinds of patients that seem to be relevant for study, and I thought those would be worth sharing with you. The first one is the interpersonal patients. So sometimes we say we need patients to deal with like our boss or our coworker. It doesn't actually mean that we have to wait for some specific outcome. It just means, in that case, tolerance. I heard today an acquaintance saying, I don't know if I can keep doing math with my daughter. I'm running out of patience. So I think what he meant was he was running out of the ability to cope with the stress of trying to get her to study and so on. So it had something specifically to do with his interpersonal relationship with his daughter. But when they studied this dimension of patience, they found that people who had more of it had more life satisfaction when they were assessed for happiness and well-being. They scored higher than people who were less patient in that way. The second one is what we often think of with patients and what we're dealing with right now in the pandemic crisis is wading through personal hardship. So something is being denied a person during this period and waiting for an outcome without getting too tense or too anxious or too stressed out. That's another dimension of patience. And the people that scored higher or rated higher with this personality trait in their studies had more hope than the average people. And then the third one is the patients required to tolerate daily hassles, like long lines that you might experience right now at the grocery store or being stuck in traffic or waiting a long time to see the doctor or waiting a long time to get an answer through email. That kind of patience is something that is a little bit different than the other two. And when people have more of that one, they enjoy better mental health, but they also have less incidence of clinical depression. So I think those three dimensions of patients give us a, a broader picture of, of what it means and how we can grow this thing in our life. I don't think it's true that patience is something that we're born with. I think it's very much a quality or skill set that we can adopt, that we can cultivate. It can grow when we learn how to do a few simple things in our life to make this more of a trait within us. Patience has this root word pati, which is the root word of compassion, actually. In Latin, compassion is compati. So that C-O-M relates to community or togetherness. So compassion means to suffer with. But we suffer with someone in order to be kind to them in some way to reduce their hardship while they wait to get through some difficulty. 
the root between patience and compassion is that there's some suffering. In the case of patience, I think that you remove the COM, which means it's about being kind to ourselves while we wait. So this, for me, is a very alive definition. Recognizing that patience is a way that I can be kind to myself. Sometimes when friends are talking to me about situations where they find themselves really impatient, maybe frustrated with another person or circumstances of life and wondering when is my opportunity going to come, I'll help them redirect their framing of the situation and I might say, it sounds like you're being kind of hard on yourself. And that will often sound strange to people. No, I'm not being hard. It's this other person that's being hard or my job's hard right now. And I said, well, I I know. But the way that you're treating yourself in the suffering may not be as kind as you think. Now imagine then if the situation where patience is relevant is not us, it's somebody else. It's somebody you love and they're waiting for an outcome. I mean, imagine telling them, you can't wait any longer. (laughs) It's been too long. You should break down. You should give up, you know. Most likely, we would find language around tolerance, forbearance, and support, and just letting people know, I'm here with you, I'm present, I can listen to you, and I can wait with you. So then we, we tend to abandon this when we fall victim to impatience. Something else that is curious to me is the saying, patience is a virtue. Why do we single out patience? I mean, you don't hear people saying, remember, honesty is a virtue. (laughs) Remember, respect is a virtue. But we do that with patience. I think maybe there's two reasons for this. The same. The first one, I think, is that the opposite, the seeming opposite of impatience, tends to be virtuized. I don't know if that's a word. But it's celebrated and romanticized in our culture. For instance... If someone says, hey, after all this quarantine passes, let's meet up. And the other person says, that sounds great. Can't wait. That'd be like, really nice thing to say, (laughs) you know, (laughs) which is essentially saying I'm impatient for that time. And the other person feels good about that. Or imagine just telling like your loved one or your boyfriend or girlfriend, can't wait to see you. That's romantic. You know, if you said, I can wait a little longer to see you. I have plenty of patience. (laughs) That might not be so romantic. The music of today is so impatient. It's got to be tonight. (laughs) Tonight's the night. I can't wait. I got to see you. Those are the lyrics of like 90% of the pop songs. (laughs) Impatience is celebrated. Nietzsche said something like, being able to wait is so hard that the greatest poets did not disdain making the inability to wait the subject or the theme of their poetry. So he said that way back when, and that's still true today. Secondly, I think that patience is a type of negation. Patience is more about what we don't do than what we do do. And so that's why it may not easily be recognized as the valuable virtue that it is because it looks on the surface like nothing is happening. 
And yet, like I mentioned with Siddhartha, there is something behind the scenes that's very dynamic. So qualities like kindness, honesty, gratitude, they require a certain action. Something positive happens. And patience is more about what you withhold. Nietzsche also said that passion is what cannot wait. So what's passion? Lust, greed, panic, despair. You're withholding those. You're guarding against those extreme forms of emotion. That's what patience is. And because it's withholding and not actually doing something, it may go completely unrecognized. Therefore, I think wise people remind that withholding is something that has a positive or net benefit in the end. That process is very valuable. It's, it's virtuous. Sort of like I was saying with courage in the beginning, that courage is only courage if there's fear and we push through for some higher purpose. Similarly, patience is only patience if there's impatience. So you want to think of this as a tightrope act because you can't entirely get rid of the impatience. And impatience isn't always bad. It's just too much impatience is harmful. But there's this balancing act. You're walking this fine rope where you could fall all the way into impatience, where despair, greed, lust, and so on, anger, rage gets the best of you. And then on the other side of this, you got indifference or laziness. If impatience is conquered, right? And a person thinks, I have all the patience in the world because I don't care. Well, then person's not going to do anything. And they're not actually withholding anything at all. So it no longer becomes patience. You fall off to the other side. And then the problem there is injustices take place or a person doesn't actually live authentically. It's an art form to be patient, to be patiently impatient or impatiently patient. Otherwise, it's not a virtue at all. And, and so it's hard to say exactly what that fine line is or what that balance is. But you will know probably by the degree of trouble that you get yourself into. Because impatience will certainly create more trouble and indifference or laziness will make a person unproductive. But don't you think that the modern culture has become a little bit impatient overall? That society has a hard time waiting? And what are the factors involved in that? Technology has made things more instant. So we have the internet, we have smartphones, we have apps that now can get anything delivered to us, we, like uh, Amazon Prime. So next day, something that I want will be here. In the past, I would have maybe had to wait days or weeks or longer. If you reflect on a time before all that, you did have to wait for a lot of ordinary things. I don't necessarily think that that makes that time better, but the art of waiting had some beauty in it. So all of these developments in technology make life more convenient. And it gives us more time. But you might ask yourself, what do we do with that extra time? 
with all of these conveniences and, and ways to connect instantaneously, what do we do with that extra time? I think people just use all the technology to just do more things, just to be busier. So the car replaced the bike and people live further away from their work. So they still had to commute. And I think that happens with each step in the advancement of the society. We get back something from the development and then we stuff more doing in there. And so in the end, people don't actually become more relaxed, more peaceful, more patient. Think of some of the things before the digital revolution that might be fun reflections. Before texting and emailing and all that, we still wrote letters. And there was something really sweet about getting this handwritten, this physical piece of art, actually. When I was studying abroad in Ireland, I came to Paris for the first time to see some friends. And they introduced me to a girl, Christina, who I fell in love with like instantly. So I had a reason to keep coming back to Paris. She was American, but she spoke French so well. So that made France come alive for me because I had somebody that I loved and she could speak fluently and we could do all kinds of things that I wouldn't be able to do without that kind of guide and translator. So I got to play music on the river with French musicians. And I had so many wonderful experiences, but I came home first and she stayed in Paris for the summer. And I couldn't call really because it was a super expensive way to communicate. So we just wrote letters. And every few weeks, a letter would come and she liked to paint with watercolors. And then I would write back and do a sloppy watercolor painting. And I miss that because, like, I know life will never really be like that again. You could do that, but you don't have to do that, right? We had to do it. And I feel blessed that I got to have that exchange for that summer. The waiting is what made the relationship beautiful for the time that it was. And when she eventually came back and we reconnected on the East Coast for the last year of school, it was wonderful. It was like we were so happy to reconnect because of all that waiting. Also, when I learned how to play the guitar with the help of my dad, he taught me a lot of things from the very beginning. We, we had guitars in our hands right out of the womb. He also had a magazine subscription to like Guitar Magazine, I think it was. And we would be so anxious for the next magazine to come and and in it, there would be like five songs that you could learn. So that was the pace of learning back then. <laughs> Once a month, you get all these lessons and the, and the tabs to, to play these songs that you love. And you had no clue what the five songs would be, but they'd usually be something good. And now it's like all there instantly. And so, yes, young people are like virtuosic technically on the instrument at very early ages, but they have access to all of the guitar knowledge that ever existed with a couple clicks on YouTube or something or on websites on the internet. Times have changed, but there was something really special about the waiting. This is like with TV shows. We had to wait each week for our show. Now we binge the whole thing, five seasons or whatever in one weekend. 
And I think producers are now realizing that, okay, well, we make this thing and everybody watches it and in one day the whole thing's over and they moved on. Maybe that's not the best thing for business. With the Bulls documentary, The Last Dance, it's like two, two for five weeks. And now we're like, if you watched The Last Dance the other night, like me, you're excited for next Sunday. I watched that because I loved the Bulls growing up, like probably many of you might have. I was really into basketball. Basketball was my main sport as a kid, growing up in Indiana especially. And so I watched every Jordan game. My uncle and my cousin got themselves on the ticket waiting list when uh, MJ was drafted in the mid-80s. And it was like a 10-year waiting list or something like that back then to get season tickets. And then he retired the first time to play baseball. And they came to the top of the list. So they got the season tickets and they're like, well, we'll take them. You know, Jordan's not there anymore, but the team's still competitive. So what the heck? So they kept the tickets and then MJ comes back and they got season tickets. And once in a while, they would take uh, me and my brother. We got to see Jordan and Rodman. So shows were spaced out. Knowledge was spaced out. Like you can just look up anything instantly. And I tend to get pretty addicted to that, to being able to instantly know anything that's on my mind or know something about anything that's on my mind. But in the past, you would have to wait till you could go look that up in the library or an encyclopedia. We had an encyclopedia growing up. It was from like 1972. That was it. <laughs> if it wasn't in there, you couldn't find it until you could go to a library. Then you remember the Heinz ketchup bottles, the glass bottles that made you wait. And that was what was special about it was that you got to wait. Can you imagine that today? You know, it's great about this new app. You got to wait longer for it. But we actually thought it was kind of cool, you know? You just you just know like this quality ketchup's coming out and that's why it takes so long. Funny things like that and the world has changed so much. But if all those changes and all the instant gratification means that we can't wait for things anymore, well then it's doing a disservice to us in some ways if we're not mindful of that and it just creates a setup for us when eventually we don't have that thing like the situation we find ourselves in now. Before we go to questions, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the spiritual side. In Sanskrit, one of the words for patience is titiksha. So Sanskrit usually has several words for one thing, but titiksha is one of the best words, I think, for it. It means to have forbearance when facing the pairs of opposites. So it's about developing equanimity towards pleasure and pain summer, winter, towards success and failure, praise and blame, and so on. That's a tough one. If you pay attention through mindfulness to how your body reacts to being blamed and how it reacts to being praised, it's really interesting to notice the subtle energy shift within us. And then to try to cultivate an attitude that can have the same balance, like it doesn't quite disturb the pond of your mind, whether you drop in the stone of praise or the stone of blame. If people criticize you and it's accurate, why, why get so disturbed by that? That's, that's very useful information. And if it doesn't apply at all, well then, 
Don't worry about it. Yogis will practice this forbearance, this tolerance by actually creating hardship for themselves. They'll meditate in the heat of summer in very exposed parts of India where the sun is beating down and they might sit in a circle of fire in the middle and practice being calm and patient and meditating. Some sadhus, sadhus are the wandering saints. They may keep their arm up for 20 years so they learn to tolerate discomfort and then their arm just deforms into that shape or they'll meditate in cold water or sit in the snow. When I started out in India, there wasn't a bed really. It was a cot, a wooden cot. So like a little wooden table with a mosquito net over it. No pillow either. But like I said before, when you have an intense yoga class, you can relax on the wood floor on your mat because you worked hard. So I learned to be able to relax and be comfortable on the wooden cot. And when I came back, I decided for 10 years afterwards, I didn't want to go back to a bed right away. It helped me be able to relax and be tolerant of discomfort. Also, I felt like by sleeping on the floor or on a small piece of wood that it kept me tuned to the poor and tuned to the suffering of others, even if things got better for me economically or in music or with success, that if I could, at the end of the day, sleep on the floor, keep me grounded, literally. Then in Buddhism, there's lots of lessons of patience from the Buddha. I can think of this one story where he's traveling with a group of disciples and they come to a clearing near a lake. The Buddha tells his most impatient student, I'm feeling thirsty. Can you get me some water from the lake? So the student walks down to the lake, but a caravan of oxen are marching across the lake carrying supplies. So they're muddying up the water. The disciples looking at the lake thinking, I can't bring a glass of dirty water back to my teacher. So he makes his way back. He says, the water's pretty dirty, so I don't think we should drink it. The Buddha doesn't react. He goes on teaching. But an hour later, he tells the student, hey, I'm more thirsty now. Do you think you could go? Get me some water from the lake. The student's thinking, I already told you, it's muddy, it's dirty. But he doesn't want to disrespect his teacher. So he goes, he looks, it's still pretty muddied. So he comes back, he says, no, the water's too dirty, we can't drink it. We probably will need to make our way back to the village so we can get some water. The Buddha doesn't react. And then, about a half hour later, he says one final time to the student, I'm thirsty again. Can you please get me water now from the lake? This time, the student, the impatient student, is angry. And he's mumbling to himself, I already told him that this water's dirty. But he's saying, I'll go bring him a glass of dirty water this time so he can see for himself if he doesn't believe me. But when he gets to the lake, the water's clear. Enough time had passed. So he fills the glass with water, the the bowl with water and brings it back and the Buddha's like oh 
This is delicious, crystal clear water. How did you do it? And this one's like, what do you mean, how did I do it? Well, you said we couldn't drink the water. You said it was too muddy. He said, I didn't do anything. It just did it on its own. And then the Buddha said, that's what patience is. You seemingly do nothing and the universe or the nature takes care of things at her pace. Emerson once said something like, adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. So that story, I think, is a metaphor for life. The mud in, in the pond, in the lake, created by the caravan coming through is when circumstances in our life are uncertain, like we find ourselves in now. So it's all muddied up. We don't know what we should do. We don't know if we should try to make a new business right now. We don't know if we should keep our old business. We don't know if we should be relaxing or hustling. It's all muddy, right? So sometimes there's nothing you can do to see clearly. Like there was nothing the student could do to bring the Buddha a glass of clear water. All he could do is wait. That's what patience is. Learning how to wait until the dust settles. This reminds me of a passage from the Tao Te Ching. Verse 15 and 16 I'll read to you. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment. Not seeking, not expecting, she is present and can welcome all things. Empty your mind of all thoughts. Let your heart be at peace. Watch the turmoil of beings, but contemplate their return. Each separate being in the universe returns to the common source. Returning to the source is serenity. If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king, immersed in the wonder of the Tao. You can deal with whatever life brings you, and when death comes, you are ready. In spirituality, you have to have patience. I remember getting introduced to a meditation path and hearing about all the things that can come from meditation. You can see light and hear sounds and feel things in your body and have all these experiences. And so in the beginning, I'm like, well, when's that supposed to happen? Does that happen after three weeks, four weeks? And after a while, you have to just forget about all that because when you're meditating to achieve something, then it's not meditation. So the goal of meditation or even mindfulness is not to get rid of this tension, to get rid of this anxiety, because the pushing of tension is tension. The avoidance of what you feel, the present moment, is contradictory to meditation. So eventually you have to learn to let go of all of that. And that's also 
I think evident in another story that this reminds me of. There was a man who was so had so much zeal for knowing the truth. They thought, I have to find a wise old man because he'll have seen enough of life. And if I can find a peaceful old man sitting by a tree, that will be my guide. So he's searching everywhere. Eventually, he comes to an old man sitting by a tree. And he thinks, this guy's old enough, calm enough, and he must be wise enough. So I'll ask him about truth. And the man says, well, I think in your case, I'm not quite old enough yet. You need somebody like 30 years older than me. So if you take this road, if you follow that path, it'll take you maybe 30 years. Then you will see a tree and he describes it perfectly in great detail. And the man who sits under that tree He describes him in great detail. And the young man is excited. Even though it's going to take a long time, with that confidence, he goes forward. But year after year, his patience does start to wane. And he starts thinking, you know, I don't know if I can march this way for 30 years. And after about 15 years heading towards that tree and that ultimate guide he's saying and even if i get there then what then i start my training and then he's going to teach me how to find truth and how many more years will it take after that he's like you know what i don't need to find truth anymore i'm content and he turns around and decides to head back he's like whatever life has for me back it's good enough i had a good enough life i don't need the anxiety anymore of this search So he starts to become more and more peaceful on his way home, which takes 15 years because he went 15 years one way. So now he comes back. And after 30 years, he's back at the original tree (laughs) with the original man who sent him on that search, who's now 30 years older. (laughs) And he realizes he looks exactly like the way he described the guy would look in the other direction. And the tree is exactly as he described it. And he's like, why did you do that to me? How could you send me for 30 years on this wild goose chase? And he said, I had no choice. You weren't ready. I described the tree perfectly. That was this tree. But you didn't look at the tree. I described myself, but you weren't looking at me. So in your impatience, you couldn't see what was right before you. But he's like, but don't think that you wasted that time. Because if you've realized this then it was all your training. It was all valuable. So ultimately, I think in spiritual life, patience starts to develop naturally when we no longer think the order of things should be the way we want it in our mind. When we accept that the universe or life has its order, not that we like that there's pain or hardship or suffering, but that we can accept that that's the way the story goes in this part. And we can co-author where it goes from there with life. Last thing I want to share with you is just some strategies for cultivating patience as a virtue and utilizing that inner strength to cope with the challenges of our time. The first one is framing. If we can get better at framing our circumstances in alternative ways or getting different perspectives, patience may 
dawn automatically. So if I asked you, would you rather have $10 right now or $11 tomorrow? Most people in this experiment will say, I'll just take the $10 right now. So I guess it's an example of not a little bit of patience just to get $1 extra. But if you ask another group of people, do you want $10 one year from now or $11 one year and a day from now? Then everybody says, I'll take the $11. So somehow our future self is more patient. Another way to think about this framing is with sequencing. There was another experiment of asking subjects whether or not they wanted $100 today or $120 30 days from now. And again, most people say, I'll take the $100 now. But if you give the same outcomes, but you frame it differently, you ask, ask the people, would you like to have $100 now and $0 30 days from now? Or $0 now and $120 after 30 days? Which do you choose? It's the same thing. But because it's put in a sequence, then it leads to the second one, which is imagination. People start going, I guess 30 days from now, that extra $20 is like a week's worth of gas. Whereas without that framing, people would say to the researchers things like, well, what's the point of waiting 30 days just for 20 extra dollars? Take the $100. No imagination. So this is the second one. When we start reframing, then the second thing that happens is imagining different types of successful outcomes. We can actually visualize ourselves being patient. If you use the imagination, you won't need as much willpower. In fMRI studies of subjects being put into situations where they need to wait for a desired outcome, those that do well with waiting, with less anxiety, less tension, have activity in the parts of their brain involved with creativity and imagination. So when they start seeing themselves successful with this waiting, it reduces their anxiety, reduces their tension. They have better mental health. Instead of relying on willpower to suffer through a difficult time or a period of uncertainty, use your imagination. Willpower won't have to be drained. And people can then have the third one, which is confidence. In studies of mice having to wait to get cheese, they can wait a little bit longer if their confidence level is 75% or higher, that cheese will come. If it dips below 75%, like 50% or lower, then they won't wait. The mice can be trained to learn that a reward is coming, and if their confidence level is high enough, they'll be patient. Same is true for humans. If we're pretty confident that something positive will come out of a waiting period, then we have the ability to wait. However, that can be boosted by the neurochemical serotonin. So one of the side benefits of antidepressants like SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which results in more of that neurochemical in the synapse between cells in the brain, one of the side benefits is that patients become more patient, patient patients <laughs> to some extent. And yet that only has a benefit 
with circumstances where there's enough confidence. So these build off each other. It also works in the mice. If the mice had a 75% confidence in getting the reward, if you boost their serotonin levels through light manipulation, then they'll wait considerably longer for that reward than they would without the increase in serotonin. We can also make use of this without medication, but just by getting more sunlight or bright light. But being out in the sunshine and the fresh air naturally can increase serotonin levels in the brain and result in people feeling like they can wait for things where they have enough confidence. But coming back to the confidence one, this also is associated with trust. I think people, depending on their religious beliefs, they might develop a degree of trust in their higher power or in Mother Nature or in the universe or in themselves. So if we trust that we have the inner resources to make something positive out of a difficult situation, then all these will build off each other. And the last two, curiosity. So when all of that fails, you can be curious about your impatience. If you get sincerely interested in what is it to be impatient, what does it mean when I say, I can't wait any longer? I can't take this anymore. Because if you're interested enough, you become mindful. And when you're engaged deeply with anything at all, you start to enter into the flow state. Then time is no longer a burden. Engage again in the mystery of life and the curiosity could help you transcend it. And then the last one is optimism. Just cultivating that quality in our attitude. My brother was just saying, we were talking about some of the challenges of some of the different businesses that we're involved with. And he said, but you know, our family is optimistic. Meaning things will lead to new opportunities because we've seen it happen. In music, we might be creating a sound that doesn't quite have a place at that time. But the culture is always changing. And so we would see the music culture would go through cycles. Sometimes they're really interested in Americana, American folk music, in bluegrass instruments. And sometimes it swings in a different direction. All you can do is keep preparing yourself. So patience with this optimism is like planting a seed and then continuing to water the seed. And it looks like nothing's happening, but something is happening. Underneath the ground, things are changing. The same is true in life. When we, If we bring it back to the interpersonal patience, we talk about planting seeds when teaching. I'm just planting seeds. Who knows when it will sprout? And with difficult people in our life, we can be like that gardener. I'm planting a seed in their heart. And now it's my duty to water it, to wait for the right time. And every plant is different, right? You plant spinach seeds, three, four weeks, you're getting some yield. You plant apple seeds, you don't get the fruit for maybe five, ten years. We don't know, that's the mystery part. 
but something's happening. That's why I say it looks passive, but ultimately patience is a dynamic spiritual virtue. I'll pause there, and if anybody has anything they'd like to share or ask about this. Todd, one question for you as it relates to, I guess, the term patience is for those around us who are struggling with it and their energy that is kind of reflected on us, them struggling with patience, let's say, how are we able to put this into practice in our lives when we may be surrounded by a world where people want to rush, rush, rush us? Thank you for that question. Yeah, the world is always rush, rush, and it's hard not to get swept up in that. I find myself asking, rushing everything. When you're around that, that may be your dojo. Dojo means the gym, the martial arts sparring space. If we don't get tested by hurriedness, by busyness, and so on, then we don't get to practice. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, someone asked a question here in a very similar vein, but they also said, any breath exercises do you have suggestions on? Yes. By deep breathing, by practicing meditation on your breath, you simulate the holding of the glass of water that has all the mud stirred up in it. Sometimes when I work with kids, we'll make glitter jars and then we'll shake it up. We'll sit together and they'll watch it eventually come down and it might take a while. And then we'll say, well, that's what your mind is like. When that glitter was all swirled up, you could no longer see the water, right? It's completely clouded. But there's still something peaceful about watching. If we just breathe deeply and watch our breath go from it being very arrhythmic and chaotic to regulated, to stable, to calm, we will essentially be waiting till the mud settles. So if you can't think clearly, just step back and breathe deeply until your breath slows down. Because breath and thoughts are correlated. The more we're breathing, the more we're thinking. Racing thoughts, high anxiety, racing breath. Slower breath, getting that to calm down, more rhythmic, fewer thoughts. Thank you. And uh, one last question here. You mentioned using imagination. I find that my imagination leads to fantasy, which leads to escapism. How do you find a balance between impulse and intuition? In my experience working with people who struggle with impulse, they typically visualize themselves failing. Also, people will visualize themselves being impatient and being overwhelmed by the impulse. I often hear people say, I don't want to go to that interview because I'm afraid I'll have a panic attack there or I'm afraid my anxiety will get the best of me, which means that they've already seen it in their mind. And there may be a chance that that could happen, right? But like anything, there's a chance that the outcome could be unfavorable, the outcome could be more favorable. It's the same with our situation. It's quite possible that the outcome will 
will not be favorable for some people. And for others, there may be new opportunities and it will be favorable. So the balance there is actually practicing ourself or visualize ourself being patient, tolerant, what it means to plant a seed now in your loved one and down the road, how it will feel when they understand what that gift was, that you didn't criticize them, that you didn't push them farther than they were able to go, than they had the flexibility to endure and so on. Intuition and impulse, I mean, there can be similar, but impulse usually is something that's leading us back to a maladaptive pattern, whereas intuition might be some new spark. So I think that's the difference we want to reflect on. Is this leading me back to a familiar spiral or something new? But I don't know. Don't just listen to me. Keep having the conversations. Trees are patient. They have to tolerate the seasons. They have to tolerate us. And when I go out to California, I always have to go into a redwood forest if I can. I feel patient. I'm around these wise ancestors, especially further north, like way up the coast, in the really old growth forests, thousands of year old trees. Well, what's the secret of their patience? Stillness. And the tree has a certain kind of symbiosis with human beings. They can sequester our carbon, our kryptonite, and they yield oxygen, which we need to breathe. Imagine that all the patience that you require with the people around you, with the daily difficulties, with the uncertainty, the negativity, just as the tree takes all of our waste and transforms it into oxygen. Feel as though your inhalation is the taking in of all of that, transforming it in the heart, and exhaling, exhaling peace and love. The forest is like one organism, one community. So let your patience be connected to all living things. Meaning we can't get too far ahead or too far behind nature. <laughs>